if you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to turn with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we're going to look at chapter 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. I'm going to read the first 21 verses of this chapter. Uh, but before I do that, uh, I've got a, uh, just a couple things to run through with you. Uh, number one is, brace yourself, I need to give you a health update. Haven't done this in a long time, and it's time to do it again. Um, several things here. One, uh, the result of one of the most significant tests that I regularly get came back this week for me. I got this test in December. I got the results back this week, and the test came back that there's no residual microscopic cancer in my body right now. So, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm very, very thankful for that. Um, it's been quite the last couple years for, for us, hasn't it? Um, so to have that result back is great. Uh, the next three weeks, I have some other major tests that are going to happen. I have a test this Friday, and then the first week of February, I have another series of scans and blood work, and, and that test I just told you about, I have it again. And so uh, if you want to be praying over the next couple of weeks, I would love that. Uh, I am not looking forward to this Friday at all. And the, each day that gets closer to February 2nd, I get more and more nervous. Uh, Last time I had these scans, you might remember the first time I was clear, and the second round I wasn't. So I'm through the first round this time, and I was clear. And so I, moving toward the second round, I get a little bit more nervous. So if you would pray for me, that would be great. So that's a health update. So a lot to be thankful for there. Um, next, wanted to remind you of what we're doing this year. So remember that we are um, looking at the whole Bible this year, and the Bible is not um, basic instructions before leaving earth. Uh, the Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is not made up of disconnected books. We are studying the whole Bible this year to see that the Bible is one story. It is one story that has four parts. Can you say these with me? Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. A lot of us grew up in places where we heard at best a two-part story, and it's messed us up. The Bible's a four-part story, and we're going to look at these four parts this whole year from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You also might remember to fill in those four-part story, we have five statements. So rather than review all of them this week, I'm going to highlight the two that you will see in Genesis 3 today. You ready? First one is this. Evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Two, grace. God initiates, God pursues, and God saves. Very important. If you'll be thinking about those two things, and hopefully when we look at Genesis 3 together, it might even make more sense to you. I also want you to know that as I was preparing to, um, preparing to present this message to you today, that as normal, I read different people and what they have to say. And there was one that stood out to me more than others this week. It was the stuff I read, some of the things I read by Tim Keller. And I want you to know it really ministered to my soul. Um, I learned a lot. I was challenged to think about Genesis 3 in deeper ways than I have before. And a lot of the ideas that I'm going to share with you today are coming from him through me. So 
go ahead and assume that what you're going to hear today is not original to me, which you should assume, assume every week. But I need you to know that I have help, um, and that's important. All right, well, let's look at Genesis 3. Listen to this, verses 1 through 21. Get ready. Hang on. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Then the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Literally, he will crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you know everything about us. Lord, there, our depths hold no secrets for you. No matter how we've been able to convince other people or even ourselves of uh, what isn't true, and how much we want to believe a lie, you know everything about us, and you love us. So as we look at this passage today, would, would you help us understand what it says? And Holy Spirit, would you apply it to our lives? Primarily, Holy Spirit, would you apply the passage in such a way 
that you bring us to Christ and that we see you, Jesus, in all of your fullness, that we understand what you've done for us and how you alone can change us and how we should desire to be more like you. Father, Son, and Spirit, work these things into us and whatever else you want to do, have your way with us. For we pray these things that you would get all the glory now and forever. Amen. Last week, when we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, I challenged you all or hoped that we could together open up a new portal in our mind in which we could explore the idea of goodness. And looking at Genesis 1 and 2, we had to try to go to a place that we've never been, right? And having been there last week, I hope that if you were here and you've been thinking about that, or right now, if you weren't here last week and you're thinking about goodness, that this question might come to your mind. How in the world did we get here? <laughs> how, how in the world, when you look at the world and when you think about all that's going on in your own life and in the, everywhere in the world, I'm hoping that this question is in your mind. If God created all things good, how in the world did we get so far from Eden? How did we get so far away from Genesis 1 and 2? Well, we're going to explore Genesis 3 this morning because Genesis 3 is going to explain how we got where we are. Genesis 3 explains how we today are so far away from Genesis 1 and 2. Make sense? So that's the point. We need to understand how we got where we are now. How do we get here? We're going to take, well, before I tell you that, I want you to know, Genesis 3 is packed with stuff. We're, I didn't even read to you the last three verses of the chapter because I, I don't have any time to explore that with you as much as I want to. We're barely going to touch on verses 20 and 21, which give us an incredible foreshadowing of the coming of Christ and his atoning work. And the grace of God, if you read 20 and 21, it's telling you Jesus is coming. It's prefiguring sacrifice. We, I can't even, that's all I can do with 20 and 21. And we're not going to talk about the extent of the curse. Our focus this morning is going to be very narrow. We're going to try to explain how we got here. And we're going to take three stops along the way. The first is temptation. The second is bad news. And the third is, you want to guess what it is? Good news. So that's where we're going on our journey. Temptation, bad news, good news. Let's jump in. God created Adam and Eve responsible creatures. He told them in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, you can eat of all this, just don't eat of this one tree. He created them as responsible creatures. Their decisions have consequences. Have you ever wondered why did, not, did God not tell us more about what he told them? Have you ever wondered why did God tell Adam and Eve, you can eat from all these trees but just not this one? Why did God do that? Why would he say that to them? Why wouldn't he give a fuller explanation of what would happen? Let me give you a suggestion why. If God laid out a full explanation of everything that was going to happen to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve would have started running cost-benefit analysis. Well, if we do this, then this is going to happen. Well, we don't want that. 
if we do this, this will happen. We, we, we kind of want that. And if they obeyed after doing cost-benefit analysis, they would have obeyed God to serve themselves. You get it? God wanted them to obey him because he's God. Full stop. You see, God is communicating something so powerful to us in Genesis 1 and 2. So powerful to us by telling Adam and Eve, you can eat all of this, just not this one tree. And here's what it is. He wants us to live as if all is gift. Adam and Eve, you belong to me. The world belongs to me. I have gifted it to you to manage and organize and help flourish. I have given it to you so that you can populate. I've even made you anatomically so you can reproduce and, and populate and enjoy it. I have given you everything. Live as if everything is gift. That means when you live, you need to be living in dependence upon me. It means that as you live your life, you should never be motivated by deficit. You should always live from the fullness of who I say you are. It means that as you, if you live your life the way that I've set up for you, what it means is that you shouldn't be cynical about life. You should live thankful lives. Lives that express how thankful you are for all that is. And friends, that is exactly where temptation starts. Look at verse one. The serpent comes to Eve and says a question. Did God actually or did God really say, did you see that in verse one? When the serpent comes to Eve and says, did he really say, did he actually say this? Trust me, the serpent is not doing any, he's not fact checking. He is trying to shift their attitude. He is saying it like this. Did God actually, did God actually say this? He's not fact checking. He's trying to get them to think that this is absolutely absurd. He's trying to shift their attitude because they're supposed to live thankful lives. He's tempting them to shift away from a thankful life to being unthankful. He's trying to get them to lose perspective on everything that God has set up. And by losing perspective on everything that God has set up, he's hoping that they will be unthankful for the one thing that God told them they couldn't do. You get it? Then the next step is this. Look at verse 4 and 5. He first adjusts their attitude and tempts them to change their attitude from thankfulness to unthankfulness. And then the next step of temptation is this. God is a liar. Did God really say this? You're not going to die. What? You're not going to die? Matter of fact, your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to realize that he doesn't want you to be like him because your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be able to tell good and evil. And he doesn't want that. In other words, God is holding you down. Sound familiar? Ever go through your mind? God's holding me down. 
He doesn't want me to flourish. If I follow what he says, if I do what he says, that will keep me down. I won't enjoy life. I won't enjoy whatever I'm doing. You see, the temptation is to shift our attitude, lose perspective, become unthankful, and then think that God is a liar, and then doubt the goodness of God. And when you doubt the goodness of God, we insert self. Well, God's trying to hold me down, I gotta break free. God is not being straight up with me, therefore I need to make this happen. Sound familiar? So let's go super slow-mo on this. Super slow-mo. Meaning, let's slow down and think about for a moment how Adam and Eve received initially temptation and think about temptation before they gave in, super slow-mo, and then think about the effect of temptation after they gave in. So super slow-mo, and the reason to do that is because of this. We not only need to think about Adam and Eve before and after they gave in to temptation, but we gotta think about our own lives because let me tell you, nothing's changed. It's still the same. Temptation still comes to us in the same way. So here's super slow-mo. Temptation comes to us, Adam and Eve, us, and says, you know what? This looks like a smart option. If you do this, it's pretty insignificant. No one really has to know. It's not going to hurt anything. This seems to be far more efficient. This seems to be a shortcut. This seems to get the same thing that you want. It's not that big a deal. Then, after we give in to temptation, we start doubting the love of God. See, on the front end, when temptation comes to us, we doubt the goodness of God. And then when we give in to temptation, we doubt the love of God. Meaning after you give in to temptation, you start thinking to yourself, man, I am a horrible, horrible person. There's no way that God could love me. Because I've done this, I've thought that, I've said this, I've done that. Start heaping shame and guilt upon you. See, temptation first gets us to doubt God's goodness, and then once we commit sin, it's like, I'm just not sure he could love me anymore. Sound familiar? Anybody ever beat themselves up when they sin? That shame, the guilt? So you don't want to tell anyone, you don't want to admit it, because deep down you think, God couldn't love me. Well, that's temptation. Let me tell you the bad news. From God's perspective, we are absolutely connected to Adam and Eve. It's not just that we're connected to Adam and Eve, they represent us. It's not only that, it means even more. It means that we were with Adam and Eve in the garden. And not only were we with them, we did what they did. Yeah, all of us. They represented us, we were there, and we did it. When they sinned, we sinned. 
If that sounds crazy to you, the Bible's saying, God is saying, we are that connected with Adam and Eve. You can read about that in Romans 5 if you want to. We're that connected to Adam and Eve. And that means that because we gave in to temptation, because we ate of the fruit, because we doubted God's goodness, and because we doubt his love now, it means three big things about sin in our lives. Three big things. And I need to, tell, I need to share these with you, but you need to hear this first. It just so happens that all three of these are really evident in our relationships, especially in marriage. So if you're here today and you're married, well, hang on. This is not going to be easy to hear. But it's true. And if you receive that, it can set you free. So be open. Be open. But, but all these are relational. All three of these come out in our relationships. It just seems to be, to some extent, highlighted through marriage. So here's number one. If you go back and look in chapter 3, 14 through 16, all these are laid out. In particular, the phrase at the end of verse 16. God says to Adam, Adam, you're going to desire to rule over your wife. Says to the woman, your desire is going to be contrary to your husband, but you, Adam, you're going to try to rule over her. First big thing is that men have a real temptation of living their lives trying to dominate women. Think we're superior? We try to keep them under our thumb? We live as if we should, we can, we ought to dominate, rule women. Oh, by the way, if you go back and read after Genesis 3, you'll see how this plays out. Polygamy. Things shift from the crown of womanhood being made in the image of God to, well, she's useful because she can reproduce. Things shift from manhood and womanhood, and the fullest expression of that is being they're made in the image of God to something else. So throughout history, you can see examples of women being exploited, even down to today, right? Then God says to the woman, but you, your temptation is going to be this. You have this incessant desire for your husband. And in a way, it's kind of contrary to him. You're going to think, you often can think that without a man, I mean nothing. That my whole identity is wrapped up in a man. So unless I have a man, I can't be anything. I'm nothing apart from a man. You see, what's happening is this. On the one hand, there is an idol of power for us as men. We can struggle with the idol of power. We want to rule everything and control everything. And on the other hand, there's this idol of relationship. As if to say, if I'm not in a relationship, then I'm not all that I should be. And in the extreme, it's like I'm in a relationship, but 
I can't contradict, I can't disagree with, because my whole identity is wrapped up in this guy. That's why in our relationships, there's an ebb and flow between men who try to dominate women or are just absolutely passive. And on the other hand, there's an ebb and flow in women in relationships in which they're absolutely trying to dominate and then entirely passive to where they never question, never challenge, never act like they can have their own opinions or be their own person, their own human being. Who happens to be in a relationship with someone? Sound like our marriage? You ever have those challenges in your marriage? Go from one extreme to the other? Yeah, that's what God's saying right here. It's the way it's going to be. It's what we know. Here's the third thing. So the first is the idol of power. The second is the idol of relationship. Here's the third one. No one has ever had to teach us how to lie. You ever notice that? No, no one has ever had to teach us how to steal. No, no one has ever had to teach us how to want what someone else has or to speak ill of someone. No one has had, we, no, I, Dave didn't have to read a book on how to speak poorly of people. Dave didn't have to read a book on how to steal from someone. You ever notice this? Anybody have to, did you have to read a book on how to lust? Hmm. We fell so far in Genesis 3, and it so deeply affected us that we are all bent in going the wrong direction. We're all bent in serving self and living for self and defining life for self. No one has to teach us those things. No one has to teach us how to work really, really hard. Well, maybe some of you, maybe. Maybe I'll say it this way. None of us know how to rest. We know how to be inactive. We know how to be lazy. But we don't know how to rest as God tells us in the commandments. It's not something that's built in to our normal day life. Oh, I need to rest. Well, no. We are so bent on being everything that's contrary to how God made us because we sinned in Adam and Eve. We were there. You don't have to teach any, we don't have to read any books on that at all. And so what do we do? Well, what does the text say? Literally, we hide. You notice that? We hide. So that meant uh, blame shifting. Did you catch it when we read it? So God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what happened? The woman that you gave me. What does Adam do there? He's hiding by blaming the woman and by blaming God for giving him the woman. Did you catch that? Guys, do you ever struggle with blame shifting? Someone comes right at you with something that's blatantly obvious that the whole world has seen and someone identifies whatever that is to you. And, well, that was someone else. It wasn't me. And then he comes to the woman and says, did, did you, what, what's going on? And what does she say? It was the serpent. We all hide. We love to hide. 
We struggle to be honest. We struggle to be vulnerable. We struggle to express what is really going on, what we're really thinking, what we're really feeling. We hide. Honesty is terrifying for us. And on top of hiding, look at what else they do. Look at what else we do. We sow our own fig leaves. Did you catch that? Want to cover themselves up. You do realize that that is a metaphor for how we not only hide, but everything that we do to cover up what we know is true about who we actually are. And you know how we cover ourselves up? We cover ourselves up with um, our, uh, our jobs, our accomplishments, our bank accounts. We cover ourselves up with um, getting approval from certain people. We cover ourselves with achievement so that when people look at us, they see achievement. They don't see who we really are. We cover ourselves up by people knowing or having an idea by the way that they observe our lives, how much money we make. So we present ourselves as having things together, but inside, oh man, we're never, never going to be honest about that. We not only hide, we cover ourselves up from people seeing what's actually true. In other words, we cover ourselves up because we're trying to make ourselves look good. Because again, we don't want to be honest. We don't want to tell people that we're struggling. We don't want to tell people that we're selfish. We don't want to tell people that we're feeling this way or that way. We don't know what to do about it. We want to be shallow and fake, right? That's why when we have problems, it's easy to turn to alcohol. We try to cover up the shame. We try to cover up the loss, cover up being hurt deeply. And maybe you haven't heard the song, but here's the song that corresponds to this. I can't drink you away. I've tried Jack, I've tried Jen, I've tried all of their friends. Can't drink you away. Have you known that level of hurt? Have you tried to cover it up with alcohol? We hide and we cover up. We even cover up with time. We think that if I can just give space, time between this thing that hurt and what I'm going, if I can just add time to that, then I can ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, and hopefully it'll go away. But it doesn't. You see, the bad news is that we are bent on serving self. We're bent on giving in to the idol of power. We're bent toward giving in to the idol of relationship. We're bent toward, no one has to teach us how to break all of what God says. And on top of that, we hide. And on top of that, we try to add things to our lives. So people look at us and think, well, he's a good person. Meanwhile, no one ever actually knows who you are. Because you never act like you're in need. We never act like we're in need. We never want to share. We never want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be honest. We just keep covering and hiding and covering and hiding. But here's the good news. Here's the good news for us. God pursues. We try to hide and God is seeking. You get the passage, right? Adam and Eve are hiding, right? And who comes to them? God. 
Are they seeking for God? Nope. They're hiding behind trees. They're covering themselves up. God comes to them and he starts by asking them questions. He is pursuing them at the deepest possible level. Look at around what, verse 8 through 11 of this chapter? Here are the questions that God asks them. Where are you? God was not looking for coordinates, people. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? What have you done? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from? You do realize that those questions are coming to you and me in just as real a form as today as they are were in Genesis 3. You get that, right? God's saying, where are you? Who you really are, where is it? Are you hiding? Are you covering up? Have you done things that God has told us not to do? Who told you you were naked? Who told you? What have you done? Beloved, you got to see these questions as evidencing the grace of God. He pursues us because he cares. He asks us questions to draw out from us what is real. Except with him, we can't lie. You can lie to my face. I can lie to yours. You can lie to your friends. But you can't lie to God. It's not as though God didn't know what had happened. He knew it all. He didn't ask these because he was trying to find information. He's going after their heart. That's really good news. It's good news for you today, even if you have a sense of, well, I don't want to admit this. Why? Because you doubt God's goodness or you doubt his love. You see? If you were convinced that God loved you, guess what? You wouldn't have a problem being more honest. If you were convinced that God is good, we wouldn't have a problem following God. But we do, and we hide, and we cover. And look at verse 15. God gives us an amazing picture of what happened. He says, I will put enmity between you and the serpent, talking to the woman, between, your seed, between her seed and your seed, meaning her offspring. And then he goes on to say, and he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. He's giving us in verse 15 an amazing picture of what would happen. In other words, let me put it to you this way. Imagine if you came over to my house, and I know not all of you have been, but a good portion of you have been to my house. So those of you that haven't been, on the back of my house, I have a screened-in porch. It's pretty much my favorite part of my house, okay? And on, the, and on my screened-in porch, I want you to imagine if we were hanging out there, no, not all of us can fit in there right now, but just imagine that we are hanging out on my back porch, enjoying being together, talking, eating, drinking, laughing, just being together. And all of a sudden, a copperhead decided to join our little get-together. And when that copperhead entered our porch, guess what we realized? Oh, there's a threat in the room. And just realize that if that happened, many of us would be wondering, well, what, what are we going to do? Like some of us are going to be running, some of us are going to be screaming, and we're not sure what's going to, do something, I can just imagine Jenny, Dave, do, you get this, you know. I can just imagine, can't you imagine? Really? Because you know I would be saying, Jenny, go, 
go. You, you, Jenny, over here. Can't you just imagine what could happen? God is giving us this picture because he wants us to understand in the history of the world, there's only been one person to step forward. There's only been one man to come forward when the snake enters the place and tangle with the serpent. One man. The rest of us, yelling, screaming, running, hiding. One man comes forward to tangle with the snake, to engage the snake. And as he is engaging the snake, he crushes the head of the snake. But in the process of that, he gets bit on the heel. And what happens to him? He dies. Just to get our bearings. Does that sound familiar? Do you recognize who that might be? His name is Jesus. And not only did he die, but after a short period of time, guess what? Our Jesus blew the back out of death. And not only did he do that, He absorbed the curse of death. Not only did he do that, he took the sting out of death and he got up and walked to new life. That's what God is picturing in Genesis 3.15. Can you see it? It's right there. Now, beloved, I want you to be convinced of how desperately we need this pursuing God. We need the God of the Bible. We need a pursuing God who seeks us, who initiates relationship, who pursues, initiates, and saves. We need that kind of God. We don't need the kind of God that sets everything up and then we just seal the deal. We don't need that kind of God. We need a literal Savior. We need the guy that steps out in the midst of controversy and crushes the serpent for us because we can't and we won't. But we're not really convinced that we need this kind of God as much as we should be. So I want you to know that we need this seeking God, a God who pursues. We need him bad. Hang on, hang with me. I want you to recognize, or I want you to at least think about, that there are two main reasons why we do everything. Two main reasons why we do everything. Here's one. I want to do the right thing because if I do the right thing, bad things won't happen. Doing the right thing is the best policy. So, if I do the right thing, then wrong things won't happen. Guess what? If that's the way that we're living our lives, the reason why we're doing the right thing is because of fear. Fear is driving us doing the right thing. You got it? We'll do the right thing because if I don't do the right thing, something bad's gonna happen. So what's actually driving you? The fear that something bad may happen. Here's the second reason why we do most things. I wanna do the right thing because I don't wanna be like other people. Just imagine as a parent, if I told my kids, Owen, Dabney, Bergen, man, we're not going to do that because we're Osbournes. Yeah. (laughs) We're Osbournes. Osbournes don't do that kind of stuff. Then what's the reason why we do that? 
pride. Get it? The main reason why we do things is either fear or pride for everything. We think if I do the right thing, then bad things won't happen. The reason we're doing it is because we're afraid something may go wrong. If we do the right thing because we don't want to be like other people, then we're doing the right thing to make ourselves look better than other people. That's pride. And guess where doing things out of pride and fear land us? We are way more messed up than we imagined. As my girls would say, shoo. Dad's in trouble. If all we do is something out of fear or pride, we are a mess. And the only way to change that is by bringing the cross into our lives. Is to bring Jesus into our lives. Because the cross is the only thing that can change us and grow us. We can do behavioral modification all day long. That doesn't get us closer to Jesus. That doesn't make us more like Jesus. We can just double down with our will and try to do the right thing, and it's important to want to do the right thing, but if it's all just stapling fruit everywhere, we're not becoming more like Jesus. The only thing that's going to make us more like Christ is to bring Christ into our life, to bring the cross into our lives. You see, the cross deals with my pride. You know how? Because I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me. So the cross crushes my pride. Because the cross doesn't mean Jesus did 50% or 99% and I do 50% or 1%. The cross means he did it all. And the cross deals with my fear. Because deep down what I'm afraid of is that God's not good or that God doesn't love me. And the cross is a standing testimony of how much God loves me. And that deals with my fear. So that I don't have to worry about anything else. I just bring Christ into my life and the cross into my decisions. And the cross deals with my motives of either fear or pride. And that means when I grow as a person and I want to be more generous as a person. It means that I want to be more generous because Christ is generous and has given me everything. It means when I want to grow in humility, I want to grow in humility not because I'll get something or I'm afraid of losing something. I want to grow in humility because Christ humbled himself. I want to, I want to grow in the ability to have self-control and control my anger. Why? Because Christ was ridiculed and reviled and he didn't respond in the same way. Do you see? I'm not wanting to be a better person motivated by fear or by pride. I want to be a better person because Christ is who I want to be. And it's what he has done for me and for you. Do you see? Bring Christ into your life. Live by the gospel. It's the only way we're going to grow. And it's the only way that we'll live our lives not being motivated by deficit. It's the only way that our lives can be motivated from the fullness of Christ. Not something I lack, but that I have everything in him. 
It's the only way that I'm going to be able to fight my cynicism. By God's grace, live a thankful life, a life of thanks, because I know that God is good and that he loves me.